Uh, you were getting quite a lot of love on Twitter this week through the show. People defending your puns. People yes. defending Seg. Um, seg. What? There was, there was there Seg defense? It was either there or on Facebook, yeah. Oh, man. How did I miss that? I don't know. Well, definitely need to <laughs> definitely need to start highlighting more of the praise I'm receiving. Yeah, obviously. Uh, if, if you guys could just start a document and oh, okay. capture that for me, it would be great. Call it, sure. Ha- call it hashtag Clay was right. I'll do that for you, Clay. Thanks, no. Kia. No. Thanks, Kia. I will You're not. You're a real pal. Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode 309, and I am Kathy Kong. I'm Clay Morgan. And I'm JR Forsteros. On this week's show, we're going to be tackling the question, what makes a classic novel? Uh, What are some of our favorite classics? And what novels from the past decade or so do we think are going to stand the test of time? But before that, um, y'all know that we got a new dog in the house, right? Yes. I, I don't know like how much that's public knowledge, but Okay, uh, so so yeah, our housemates elected to get a dog uh probably about three months ago. It is a it is a, allegedly a, a chai weenie, which is a chihuahua dachshund <laughs> mix, uh named Chloe. Now they're just breeding for humor. Seriously. <laughs> um but uh, I've noticed some strange things about the dog over the last few weeks. Uh, times when I would swear that she's outside and she's inside times when, uh, an entire bag of treats will go missing, uh, inexplicably. Mm. And so it's starting to make me wonder if she has, uh, magical powers. Well, there's, there's only two, there's only two possibilities here. Okay. I mean, either it's a stranger things situation. Mm-hmm. She's clearly created a gateway to the upside down. Uh, or you have begun short term memory loss symptoms. That could be. I also wondered if maybe she's not really a chai weenie. Uh, what if she is a labracadabrador? Labracadabrador. That's it. How long have you been sitting on that? <laughs> wow. I mean, when JR said he had an urgent dog update, I, uh, I should have seen that coming, folks. <laughs> Talk about breeding for humor. <laughs> good good stuff anyway um, well, more I, have, I also have an important topic <laughs> i wanted to ask you guys about today do you <laughs> do. you sound so skeptical Kathy. i am i mean we just heard about never mind <laughs> <laughs> i, I want to know if you guys have been following the martian space ketchup story of the week no i have not uh, i'm so excited about this Okay. No. Okay. So, Kathy. Yes. I want to tell you about the latest in astro agriculture, which is coming to us as researchers have developed ketchup mm-hmm. made from tomatoes or mm-hmm. even tomatoes cultivated in Mars like conditions. Because I think there's a couple obvious questions about space exploration. Yes. Can we sustain life on other planets? And when they're sustaining life, can we have ketchup? Right? I mean, that's pretty well, much the order. The order. Okay. 
But Mars-like, so what do you mean? Like, it's not actually Mars, obviously. But. Right, because we can't go there yet, right? Uh, we haven't no. sent humans <laughs> to Mars. But they they created— They uh, sent tomatoes to Mars? No, 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 no. no. Researchers, <laughs> the researchers planted Heinz tomato seeds, which I love that they're Heinz tomato seeds because, you know, Pittsburgh, in earth soil that chemically simulates Mars's uh, rock and the dust that covers Mars rock, Martian— surface and then all the okay. atmospheric conditions and all that kind of Got stuff it. yeah to yeah. just see like if we do send mm-hmm. yeah humans to mars right how does yeah. it taste how does it taste i guarantee it tastes better than hunts or any <laughs> other fake ketchup i don't know if our listeners know fully clay uh how angry you get when we're out at a restaurant and they have hunts tomato ketchup it clearly, people know. If you're a real fan of this show, you know my ketchup outrage. Man, I, I have a real know. passion. I have a There's, real passion for ketchup. It's, 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 quite, it's quite a thing to experience in real time. Okay, so I come from Pittsburgh. We take really? a couple of things very seriously. Mm-hmm. And one of them is ketchup. Mm-hmm. And objectively, Heinz ketchup is so far above and beyond. And, and what I've learned living in Dallas is... The closer you get to the southern part of the country, we always knew that when we would travel south on vacation, we would go into these fraudulent food establishments that would serve us like literally bottles. They don't even call it ketchup. They call it catsup, right? Because it's literally not even ketchup. It was so disgusting. Like our family did not go on vacation without Ziploc bags of Heinz ketchup because like we couldn't (laughs) eat. We couldn't eat that disgusting grossness they tried to serve us in the south. Goodness. And really? if you go, actually, the first time I got a hot dog in uh, Mexico, you know, I, I I literally couldn't even eat it. I thought the I thought the bun was weird. I thought the dog had gone bad. And then I got it a second time, and I had the same experience. And then when I dipped fries, I realized it's actually like a like ketchup in Mexico is is literally made differently. It's like a different mm-hmm. flavor, right? Because of the yes. whole palate. So I didn't realize that I don't like ketchup in Mexico for for a while. Um. But this is a big deal. So there's a famous amusement park in Pittsburgh. Okay, Kennywood Park has been around since like, I don't know, the 1890s or something. It's got some of the oldest coasters in literally in the world still there. So like, I don't know if you had high school days where you would at the end of the year go to like an amusement park or something. Everybody in Pittsburgh has Kennywood Day. And a little little side fun note, when your zipper's down in Pittsburgh, people say Kennywood's open. It became this shorthand like over the years. What? So that is so weird. Like there, there are like hundreds of thousands of people that know that Kennywood's open means your flies down, and uh, that's just a whole other thing. And listeners, now all you. That's know, right. That's right. We so you, all know that is a weird. That's a weird inside joke. So right next to the Thunderbolt, there's this amazing little food place called the Potato Patch, and they have these awesome amusement park French fries. So a couple of years ago, this is this must have been right before COVID. This park in like the Pittsburgh area, literally next to Pittsburgh, decided to break their longstanding relationship with Heinz and start serving hunts with the Potato Patch, and like. If you want to go down a fun Twitter rabbit hole, watch the like outrage, the petitions, the news stories that immediately erupted. People started boycotting Kennywood. Um, 
I mean, literally, there was a news story that said the park opened this season to customer unrest when it was reported the cheese changed at the potato patch. So they were already under fire for changing the cheese. And then they try to get rid of Heinz ketchup. So I, I thought I should just share with you, in, in the spirit of today's show, I just, I just want to tell you this classic tale of the ketchup amusement park scandal of 2019 and a hero named Juju. Because Steelers star wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster took a bottle of Heinz ketchup. The Steelers play Kathy at Heinz Field, as mm, you know. Yes, yes. He went to the park with a bottle of ketchup and started pouring Heinz ketchup on people's potato patch fries. And it was the ultimate PR move. The park literally had to break their new contract with the vendor and find a way to readopt Heinz. And they said with much apology we hope this incident is in hindsight oh god hindsight. No. <laughs> they said that in their statement and, <sighs> and 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 everything has recovered so kenny wood moved on survived the disaster the fiasco and now we're moving on to greater things above and beyond in the universe so that um not only beyond is Heinz Pittsburgh. the best ketchup the only ketchup for this planet but for the entire universe as well. Well, there you have it, listeners. I'm, I'm stunned. Kathy, can you walk us through your emotional journey of the last few minutes? <laughs> I'm really confused. <laughs> I'm really, I'm just imagining the dedication of packing ketchup, like not and not just ketchup, like Heinz ketchup. Yeah. For the purpose of I, I, I do have to ask one tripping. clarifying question about that, Clay. When you say you packed Heinz ketchup into Ziploc bags, I'm assuming that you meant individual Heinz ketchup packets, not that you squeezed bottles oh, of Heinz yeah, yeah. into <laughs> right, Ziploc right. bags. Right, 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 right. Okay. I mean, I guess it would have been smart. But, you know, people have this weird thing about leaving ketchup out of the fridge. You know, but you, you technically could have just taken a bottle of ketchup. Right. But then when you're traveling, you're, you know, you leave it in the car while you go to your sites and see all your dead people's homes or whatever other people do on vacations. Um, it's just the Wait, packets. back up. What do you do? What were you doing? Seeing dead people's homes? Yeah, you, vacation is a week every summer where you get in a station wagon and you drive from Red Dot on the map to Red Dot on the map and you see a bunch of houses where dead people once lived. Oh. Famous presidents, mostly if you're a Morgan. Oh, way beyond famous presidents, yeah. But uh, plenty of them, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what vacation... What, what did you do on vacation? Well, we did do a lot of red dot to red dot. And look, oh, we could yeah. also go to that red dot. But those yeah, red yeah. dots usually were like national parks, not homes of dead people. Were yeah. your red dots made out of Heinz ketchup, Kathy? No, they were not. But they <laughs> we, we would probably trace our route were, in They ketchup. were probably speckles of like kimchi. <laughs> Because we did travel. That's right. We did the vacation episode last year, and we heard about you and your grandparents and and the lengths you went to. I I find it a little bit mm, disingenuous that you would bristle at us putting ketchup packets in our car. It's not brand specific. It's not (laughs) brand specific. Like, you can find ketchup anywhere. You can't find kimchi in Yellowstone National Park, at least not in the But if you did, I bet it wouldn't even be good like your grandma made it. Uh, I don't think we were taking kimchi that my grandmother made. Well. Yeah, it was really just about, like, we're not going to be able to find Korean food out in the middle of nowhere. I guarantee that someone's listening. And you can find ketchup anywhere. Not 
always Heinz. I yes, I'm learning. That. Do you know what H.J. Heinz major innovation was? No. The, in addition to creating the greatest condiment the world has ever known, paprika no. in the ketchup. Nope. He um, used clear bottles. Think about those old 19th century glass wares mm-hmm. you see. They're all green and dark. Mm-hmm. And remember, everything was like questionable. There was no FDA or anything. Mm-hmm. He was like, we have a good quality product. We're going to put it in a clear bottle. Oh. And then we're going to okay. put a label on it. We're going to actually tell people what's in it. Mm. Change the game, folks. Okay. For America. Well, for open, honest ketchup. Heinz. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks for indulging me. Um, on that classic uh, condiment. That's right. That's right. JR. Thank you. So JR, I um I had this idea a few months ago that raised a pretty good question for our show today. And it what started the the journey was a famous book birthday that has just happened here in the past couple weeks. Would you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, uh what is considered by many people who I guess have read it to be one of the great American novels, uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville turned 170 years young today. Wow. <laughs> well, not today, but not today, but today. recently, yeah. recently, Within the last <laughs> we, don't know when you're, we don't know when you're listening to this. So yeah. Well, on this day, it, it is today. still 170 years. Unless they're young. listening to this a year from now, unless we have someone else who's catching up to the old episodes and we're on episode 600. Kathy, have you ever read Moby Dick? I have not. Me neither. JR? Uh, So when I was a kid, I don't even know where I got all of these, but I had, (laughs) like, probably 50. uh, They were called Illustrated Classics, and they were graphic novel condensed versions of just about every, like, classic novel you can imagine. Were they small and square? No, 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 no. They, uh, they were about, they were a little bit smaller than your average paperback, but they were rectangular and they were all around 60 pages. And again, they were, they were comic books, you know, graphic novels. Uh, I mean, I remember having Wuthering Heights, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, uh, all kinds of them. And Moby Dick was one of them. And so I read, uh, I read at least the first panel where he says, call me Ishmael, which is the famous Mm. opening line of Moby Dick. And I read the whale battle at the end, for sure. Spoilers. Jeez. Uh, yeah. And you know what they say, honestly, a picture is worth a thousand words. So mm. those books were pretty thick. A lot of words in them. If you count all those pictures up. So you're so, saying two whales battle at the end or, mo- or more than two? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, so I think most people know the plot of Moby Dick, right? Or when I say the plot, I think I just mean the big metaphor that uh, Ishmael gets on a ship captained by a guy named Captain Ahab. And Ahab has this obsession with uh, the great white whale, Moby Dick. And it ends with Moby Dick destroying the ship and Ahab, like, riding the whale off into oblivion. And then Ishmael, like, washing up on shore. And it's mm-hmm. it's a book, uh, you know, about obsession and how obsession will kill us and probably some other stuff, too. I don't know. I think that's literally the most I've ever heard about how it resolves. So that's helpful. Yeah. Moby Dick does not <laughs> die at the end. Oh, Okay. This is the kind of breaking news people come here for. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers for Moby Dick. He makes it. What? Okay, so check this out. So, JR said it turned 170. That's correct. So, Herman Melville was born in 1819. 
So the book came out in. So he's almost eight, 200 or a little over 200. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's see. I, I'm trying to do math on the fly. It's always dangerous. Wait, what's 170? Yeah, I that's right. 1851. So the book came out in 1851. So he would have been in his early 30s when he worked on it and wrote it. And I mean, that book's it, long. He was probably in his early 20s when he started it. Probably. <laughs> um, it, it was not he was famous. was handwriting it, probably, right? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Agonizing. That's brutal. And dipping it in. The, yeah. Uh-huh. The book went out of print a few years after it first appeared. It's This, okay, uh, Clay, I knew none of it, these it, facts that you're about yeah. to, to spiel out. Okay. And it blew my mind. Like, so. So I, I knew part of it. I knew that he was one of those famous literary figures that never uh, achieved really riches or fame. In his I might have learned it. I might have learned this reading Stephen King's on writing. I'm not sure. Somewhere so, along so the line. So Moby Dick went out of print while mm-hmm. Melville was alive. Yeah, like way, a couple years that. after a, a couple years after it was published. Was it? I mean, did they run out of paper? No, people just weren't interested. <laughs> it was a supply chain issue. <laughs> <laughs> that book is so he gets right. a job. This is like the most depressing thing because you imagine this is a, the creative, right? We we can all right. like understand. He gets a job in the U.S. Customs Service pushing paper, and he spends the next forty years basically just like working. And thinking, that was a pretty good book, I thought, but oh well, I guess not. And <laughs> he dies in 1891. And so, another and his generation... His obituary didn't even mention the book. That is wild, right? To, to, to For something so... Really? Ubiquitous. Because it wow. wasn't... Because it wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't ever. a thing, right? It so, it was in the 1920s. Yeah, how many TSA agents are sitting on a great American novel? <laughs> I mean, maybe If you literally. are one of those TSA agents sitting on a great American lo- novel, please <laughs> right. let us know. We would love yeah. to interview you. We would love to oh, help yeah. you quit depriving people of their civil liberties <laughs> in the name of security theater Here we and go. get back to producing good works of art. I just want to say my opinions and passion for ketchup is – Way more, I think, reasonable and rational than JR's views of really? civil liberties. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think Fourth Amendment, um, not that serving ketchup. Drama. There's there's some parallels there. Taking for sure. your shoes off. That's disgusting. Again, let's remind Who takes their shoes off? It doesn't actually do anything to keep us it safe. It doesn't. It's all smoke and mirrors. Well, that's why I don't do any of that stuff. And anyway, Clay. Feet. <laughs> take us to the take us to the magical world of the roaring 1920s. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but somewhere along the line, it after the war, someone picked it up and decided it was a pretty good book, and then it just slowly made its way into school curriculums, right? And it became one of those required reading texts for some years. Um, I I don't know this at all, but having just watched that Hemingway documentary not too long ago. I wonder if there was something in the air in that time about the kind of American books that were being written. You know, Fitzgerald was starting to create, was really starting to make the form famous and stuff like that. Um, Maybe people started to look and say, hey, what else have we missed here, you know, from American authors? Mark Twain had died a decade before and so on. But someone uh, was like, it can't get worse than Ernest Hemingway. So (laughs) it it can only go up from there. Who knows, man? He wasn't super popular by the 1920s, but nevertheless, what's interesting to me is people who do love this book 
Uh, and there are folks who read it and reread it, you know, like it's Lord of the Rings and, and folks who do that. I, I've heard I've heard it uh, described as that story of man's obsession, as a workplace comedy, as a nature documentary, as all these different things. But I've got I, a hot um, take for you. Okay. I think there's more action in Moby Dick than in Lord of the Rings. Ah, interesting. You talk about a slog. <clears throat> <laughs> trying to get Frodo and Sam through the desert of Mordor. Oh yeah, um, that was painful. Yeah, like I well, mean, I'm even so, the movie version. I don't know about the book version. Oh, the I'm movie so glad version. you guys brought this up. You guys have read these books. Like you've really I, sat. I, no, okay. I actually did not read oh. Lord of the Rings. Oh okay. I tried, well, and there was a lot of like random singing. <laughs> that's true. Okay, I did do the Hobbit on audiobook. And, yeah, and I, I just was uh, like, I can't do this. Uh-huh. So, so this is what I really want to ask you guys about today. Mm-hmm. So here we have a work that is considered one of the great novels of all time. Didn't move the needle for 70 years, right? And now it's been this famous for a century. And so the question that I thought of was, I wonder what is around today mm-hmm. that's still going to last 170 years. So I thought we could talk about you know this modern classic idea, but in a way that really is to say... Not now, but later on, can mm-hmm. we identify some of the criteria? Because one of the things that has to happen is somehow the work has to be relevant outside of its original time and place. And there's there's a very big difference, right, between something being popular, even for a generation or two, and right. lasting two. I mean, think about it. The year 2200, that's pretty crazy. And it also seems, of course, there's way more. There's just way more content. There's way more books and so on. So I was asking Jen, what are the criteria in a conversation like this? And she Mm -hmm. said, well, people in the future are going to have all of the data. She's like, think about all the digital data, everything. Everybody will know all the numbers on everything that's ever existed. And I said, okay, so it's the difference between having the data on what was popular versus people in a future time eagerly still wanting to consume it as a great book, right? Uh, but again, I think you go back to Melville's example and you can say, but it is it is uh, apparently not only possible, but likely that there is stuff that is being produced right now that is, for whatever reason, either uh, not being made accessible or is far enough ahead of its time that it's being ignored. And so even if you ran the numbers and found something that's popular, you know what I mean? Like Melville wouldn't show up on what's popular in, you know, the 1850s or whatever. Okay, well, let's let's start with this then. Let me ask you guys, what is your favorite classic? So, JR, what's your favorite classic work, first of all? Bram Stoker's Dracula. Okay. Was it famous at its time as soon as it came out? Yes. Right? That was one. That made a pretty big splash pretty early on. Uh, why is that your favorite novel, favorite classic novel, by the way? Um, so one, I would say I have not made it a like a goal to read all the classics. You know, they have that like uh, Harvard and some other you know big places have put out like the hundred books you have to read before you die or that kind of stuff. And I, I haven't ever really made it a point to check those off my list, um, yeah. largely because so many of them are. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but like books by old white guys and, uh, I've read a lot of those already. Um, 
and I don't want to denigrate like Plato's Republic or something like that. Right. But some of those lists feel a lot like you're kind of checking off representatives of their times in a way. Uh, You know, I read I read Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was young for the first time. I was probably 15 or 16. I, I actually bought at Walmart the like two for a dollar, like mass market paperback edition of it. Do you still um, have it? Oh, he- uh, if I do, it's in like a crate that my mom would be having it stored somewhere. But uh-huh. I, I was, I was. Uh, if if you have never read Bram Stoker's Dracula, it is actually presented as a collection of letters and diary entries. So it, it was one of those like experimental sort of novel formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even back, you know, when it was written uh, in in the in the nineteenth century. So I think that was really uh, formative for me, seeing like even that early age and that old of a book, how the how the format could be toyed with in a novel. Um, And it's, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it is a deeply Christian book, which really surprised me because I was used to being the kid who loved Goosebump books and Ghostbusters and having to keep that separate from my faith. But having Van Helsing, who's one of the main characters of the novel, be like a uh being a person who is motivated by his faith and has these like long very Jesusy speeches in the book I was like oh well this is interesting like the book is actually saying something about faith um now again I've kind of grown and changed my mind on what it's saying and whether that's all good or not as my recent tour article sort of walked people through but uh yeah all of that all of that combined for a book that really spoke to me hit a lot of my interests and I think had a lot of important things to say uh, in ways that I didn't really even understand on the first reading. So I've, you know, I've probably read that book five or six times all the way through. Um, and yeah, even though the language is a little bit archaic uh, and the style is a little bit different from what I normally read, I still find it really enjoyable to read. It's a, it's just a really fun book and a really, I think important book. So that's a really great one. That's an interesting point you say about the value of going back and reading the the classics as they are defined. I think we need to return to that in a minute. Yeah, for sure. Um, but Kathy, what, what about you? Do you have a favorite classic novel? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this question for a while. I, I don't. Um, I have, and I was trying to think, well, what kind of classic novel have I reread? So that I, I had to kind of set, like separate or maybe add the question because initially I thought, well, um, I really loved Les Mis. Uh, Victor the, the Hugo. Book. Wait, you read the book? Yes, I've read the Woo! book. Yes. That's an accomplishment. And um, and I read it after already having seen the musical. Okay. Right? So, um, Like on stage or one of the film adaptations? I saw it on or? stage. Wow. We saw it on stage. Okay, okay. And then I thought, this was a beautiful musical, but... I'm going to commit to reading the original work. And this was in my, I want to say. Quick question. Yeah. So you were not as bothered by all of the songs in the book as you were the songs in The Hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's literally not breaking out in song. Different. Different. It's such a great, it's such a Um, great musical. (laughs) So, yeah. So I loved the book because um, just, the character development and all of the the themes, you know, forgiveness and 
all that kind of stuff. But when I thought about it, and I don't know if this would be, I don't think it's considered one of those great uh, classic novels because I don't think it's old enough yet. Oh, yeah. Heck, yeah, right? it is. No, no, no. Not um, not uh, uh, Les Mis. Oh, the, oh, oh. The, the, the novel that I have reread like from childhood and then again like young adulthood and then again more recently would have been A Wrinkle in Time oh. by Madeline Langle. Interesting. Um, and in part, uh, it was my first introduction into kind of this sci-fi fantasy world in a way that felt much more accessible to me. And then I think it had everything to do with who introduced it to me, which was my uh, elementary school librarian. And she took a bunch of us, which probably would not be allowed now, to hear um, Madeline Langle speak at a local college. And so I remember leaving my then trilogy with the school and having them signed. So I have reread, yeah. So I got to meet her and listen to her speak about this family and time travel. And (laughs) it was was wild. And then reread it in anticipation of the movie that had come out a few years ago. So, you know, I feel like A Wrinkle in Time isn't classic enough, but it's one of the few novels that I have reread at different points in my life. Wow. You know, it's that, you know, Kathy uh, and Clay, I definitely want to hear your answer, but something else we might want to return to is that is definitely, it, it's like in that middle space between a new a new thing that has come out and something that is a classic for sure. It's like mm-hmm. one of those things that's now old enough that people are like, this is, this is one of the, you know, let's say dozen or two dozen works from that time that still is on everyone's shelf. That's still getting read and still getting picked up. It's on its way to being a classic, mm-hmm. but you're right. It's not like, it's not quite there yet. Right. Right. It's not old enough and she hasn't been dead long enough. <laughs> um, but again, it, it's one of those like, oh, and then I found out she wrote a lot and wrote different things. So whereas once I was done with Les Mis, I was done. I've never reread it. It's really long. <laughs> so I think one time through is enough. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So um, well, guys, yeah, well, the correct answer is my favorite classic is the Bible. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Good job, you. I win all the Sunday school points. You do. No, Kathy. There aren't I, that many. I, really. I have been thinking about this question. I Okay, so I thought maybe I was the worst when it came to caring about and reading the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you're just as terrible. Mm-hmm. But then again, you went ahead and read Les Mis. So, so I win? You, you, you do have that on me. I don't really have a favorite classic the farther back you go. Okay. So the one that I read that I actually, and it was a slog in the middle. So I constantly would be so bored so fast when I was reading the quote classics, I would just stop. So then I got into college and I was like, that's it. I've got I've, I've to be a person who's read You've these You've got to finish at least one. So I was like, audiobooks. <laughs> I can't tell you how many like Dickens books and others I like still didn't even get through on cassette and then CD. I was like, nope, still boring even when I use my ears and I'm distracted. 
you know, by commuting. I just constantly was let down and disappointed by how uninteresting they were. You know? And then they added zombies, for example, to Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, oh, okay, they made it good. Significantly improved, yeah. Yeah. I like um, the original. That was one possibility. <laughs> Jane Austen. She's funny. I, I, She's a lot of people funny. love Jane Austen. And, and remember, I'm married to someone who read all of the books and had to read all the books. and did mm-hmm. re- like So it's just embarrassing. But I did read the Odyssey. I did stick with it and get all the way through the Odyssey. And I'm not sure why, but almost by like default, that one has to stand then. If it was one that I hung in there with and was into, I did read the entire Odyssey, but that's mm-hmm. so old. So I just really struggle in the conversation. Like, I, I'm not, have I seen some Shakespeare plays? Yeah, but like, I'm not trying to read them, you know? Um, <laughs> if I were more widely read, because I love autobiographies so much, I'm sure I would have read some older autobiographies, right? Because I've read like dozens and dozens of them from the 1960s on. I bet my favorite classic book would probably be someone's autobiography, hmm. you know? So, yeah, I kind of struggle with it. But then I guess if you talk about the 20th century, I think we could say that 1984 is a classic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Probably that's like the bookend. So it's like the Odyssey on the one end as far as I made it through and I kind of enjoyed this old, old, old work. And the 1984 kind of on the more modern side with Poe in between for me. Um, okay. Sarah, I was also bored by Dracula when I tried it. Um, but Poe. He's a short version. Yes. Uh, but I, I definitely I definitely got into some Poe. So that's kind of where I am on like my experiences with the classics. But well, I the Odyssey yeah, is a good one. I mean that's that's a pretty major epic work. Yeah, I read the version without even uh, Sean Bean or Brad Pitt. So that's you know, really to my credit. So okay, so Jerry, you, you, you made this point right that I think is really at the heart of our conversation. So there's a question of what is likely to be remembered 170 years. And then there's a question of what should be remembered 170 years from now. So, um, for example, Octavia Butler, famous author. She's been known now for decades. She passed away, I think, in 2006. So Kindred, right, JR, is her very famous novel from the 1970s. That and then the parables, the parables duology. Okay, so I mean, there's so many examples we could throw out, but I just yeah. picked this one, right? So, on the one hand, I think there is something that lasts and gains relevance and attention over time. But I'm also interested in how adaptations give new life, extended life, or immortality to an original work as well, right? And so you could even say from like Octavia Butler to something like, what about the Hunger Games? Hmm. So just to to kind of start this last part of the conversation, I'll put those on the table. And I'm curious, what do you guys think when you start to imagine 170 years from now, what's around, what's still being consumed eagerly and so on? You know, I, I I think we are in a uniquely difficult place to judge that right now because who gets published, why they get published, and whether or not that's just is in such flux. So, for instance, uh, Catcher in the Rye has long been considered a classic, right? Came out in the 50s. Uh, J.D. Salinger, right? 
Um, in the last few years, there's been a growing movement of people who are like, this is a whiny, whiny privileged white boy. And the reason it's been considered a classic is because only white men got to make that rule and they can all relate to Holden Caulfield, but literally no one else can. And as we've gotten more people around the table making these decisions, that book has has vanished from the lists, right? And so whereas even a decade ago, I think anyone who any list you looked at would have had Catcher in the Rye on it uh, in another in another decade from now, it's not going to be anywhere. Um, I was thinking to that point, I was thinking of like Jack Kerouac. Yeah. So Mm, I've never really I've never read On the Road. I think that's the book. Um, But so Kerouac was like, you know, the beats, this big movement in the 60s, super relevant in the 70s, still remembered fondly in the 80s. Now, like new life here in the last few years with the movie and stuff like that. That doesn't strike me as one that becomes more than a footnote 170. Like the beats and Kerouac and that stuff, that doesn't unless You know, unless we have some kind of unless, you know, everything that's going on with climate change and and everything, uh, unless metropolitan centers break down and fracture and we get this more like modular kind of society, you could see that sort of a book kind of having a revival, you know, and then it gets hailed as prophetic uh, and and, and we just don't know. Um, I I think about something like Harry Potter, which, again, the massive (laughs) numbers uh, the, right. the adaptations, everything. It seems like this unstoppable juggernaut, but J.K. Rowling being a turf, you know, tr- uh, a trans exclusionary radical feminist is really massively hurting her staying power. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I just, I'm, I would be really surprised if given the glut of other magical boarding school fiction that's that's been coming out since Harry Potter and will continue to come out, if Harry Potter ends up being anything more than a, this is the, the, something like Lord of the Rings, where it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, this kind of like, this kind of like broke open epic fantasy. And so if you want to be a completionist, you need to go back and read it. Or, Hmm. let let me put two spins on this and see what you guys think. One, you go far enough into the future, you move past the politics of a time and the Twitter wars of the day and a lot of stuff, like what really lasts 100 years from now about J.K. Rowling. Is, is what we don't know. Maybe the work is far more remembered than the author and the controversies of her time. Or think of Wizard of the Oz. It was the Wizard of Oz, right? The uh, Frank Baum series. There were like 13 of those books. Sure. Wildly um, popular. He was a political idealist. He was just trying to like basically. Right. He, and so he, was, he was part and of the a book movement. is political. <laughs> Right. And the, the movie comes along and is something very different than the book. And nobody really knows what the original book even said. But that, that kind of comparison too, when you think about Harry Potter and so sure. on. But that, and it that's launches an off one. into Wicked and all of these other kind mm. of modern takes on the story that has nothing to do with the actual book, Wizard of Oz. But it's also tricky because it's going to depend on who are the folks in power who can continue to bring up those the stories around the authors, right? So it's not just about the work and the popularity of the work, but it's surrounding, it's all of those conversations around who gets published, why they get published, and then who is the author and what have they done since the big popularity of said book, I think becomes a, a lot more complicated than it did for someone like you know, Melville, <laughs> where there is no, there's nothing 
we'd have to read handwritten letters, right? Exchanged between people as opposed to uh, characters exchanged out on the interwebs that just anyone can grab a hold of and take a screenshot of. And so I think that's what's different in this conversation about what makes a classic. I think there are so many more things at play than just the work itself and how it exists down the road. It's how the author exists down the road and how we don't know if J.K. Rowling can rehabilitate her own reputation, right? That's, that, that is a story yet to be told. And there's a possibility she's young-ish, right? So if she were to do that, I wonder, does that change the lasting impact? Well, she's also a, a billionaire with kids. So well, five generations know. from now might be billionaires who can do a lot who of good can, spin work. Who can work, do that, right? right? So again, I think that that whole, the, the PR around a book changes as we get further along in time. And, yep. I, and I don't know how that will play out. Because, right, now we are questioning things like, thankfully we are questioning things like Catcher in the Rye, which I read in high school and couldn't stand. And remember having those conversations mm. in high school going, why am I reading this? This is nothing. I'm, I go to school with these kids. Like, you are. You are this brat. I needed to read a book and write a paper? I sit next to you. So, so okay, I wonder me, what that yeah, looks like. That's a great point. Let me ask you about this one then, both of you. To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> so, <laughs> 10 years ago? Right. It's unthinkable that that book is not in the, like, one of the front runners, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In this kind of conversation 150 years from now. Maybe, probably, when you, mm-hmm. when you start looking at, like, what has the, if you're, like, doing the Vegas odds, right? That's going to be a, a strong, probably, two-to-one favorite com- coming in at the lead. And, uh, again, to these changing times you talk about, but also to this, like, other published work. It could be something comes along, someone's papers are released, to your point, Kathy, or that terrible next novel. Like, it can undermine it. So I'm also interested in how, yes, things can be undermined, but then also we've done shows on this entire topic of, at some point, the art becomes the public's and the life and failings and morality of the creator um, who's, uh, I'm blanking, Will Stryker. I'm totally blanking on his real name from Star Trek JR. Stryker, uh, uh, Will Wheaton, I'm sorry. Uh, isn't he, did, didn't he <laughs> play Stryker? Like, no, Will Wheaton just gave, he was just basically asked, uh, it was it was specifically about Joss Whedon, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he, he was talking about the toxicity and the terribleness of the man, and yet the work and all of the stakeholders involved and the other people who were involved. And he, he gave a really nuanced and I thought thoughtful response about that conversation that we've had here, you know, um, about how you can't, you know, extricate one from the other, but at the same time we do and so on. So I find that interesting as well. And we're just talking about stuff that we already know about. We're not even talking about the stuff that is potentially just sitting in a dollar bin right now on its way out of print. So, what, what would you like to see last 170 years? Or what do you suspect is something that's kind of coming out in the last few years that's probably got as much of a right as anything to be there? What should be? Yeah, I mean, I want to, before I answer that, I want to say I think a lot of stuff 
won't and doesn't need to last because a lot of stuff is written to the moment. I'm thinking especially a lot of like a lot of my favorite books, nonfiction books coming out right now. Um, I hope we don't need hmm. something like right. Subversive Witness right. 100 years from now. <sighs> I hope 100 years from now people read that and they're like, uh, yeah, Can't was this book written for third this. graders? Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially um, nonfiction, right? You know, because because it's so I, I I think I think a lot of stuff the more prophetic it is the less relevant it is and I say this as someone who teaches the biblical prophets right like you have to do a lot of work <laughs> with Isaiah or Malachi or Amos before it becomes clear how they might speak to us today because their messages were so contextual and so embedded. And I, I think that's the case for a lot of stuff. Um, so, so, so I want to say that first of all, like I, I don't think any of us is saying that when we're saying these books might become classics, these books might not be, I don't think we're making a value judgment on these books are better or these books are worse. There's something, there is something transcendent about classics in a great way. So I would look at something like, Ken Liu's uh, uh, Dandelion Dynasty books, which we, you know, we had Ken on our 300th episode. Uh, those books uh, created a whole subgenre. They're rich. They're resonant. They build off of East Asian history to tell a fairly timeless story of uh, politics, of family dynamics, and that kind of stuff. And I could easily see... 100, 200 years from now, people pointing at these in a lot of the same ways we look at Lord of the Rings and saying, like, man, like these books cracked something open and created some new space that it took 20, 30, 40 years to even realize what was growing in that space. Do you think. So, like, right now in parts of the country, there's also a new movement of banning books. <laughs> because of this whole stuff around CRT. And I can't help but wonder if that will also have an impact on some of these, because some of these classics are being banned again, which is really kind of funny. It's like, oh, we keep doing the same thing. Um, and and maybe there are more recent books that are going to be banned or are, I haven't I haven't looked at any recent list, but wondering like, how does that impact? kind of the resurgence later on, or even now, right? If it's if it's something you're not supposed to read, does that make it more appealing? That wasn't, I wasn't in school during a time where books were being banned or in an area where that was a big concern. So that did pop into my mind about, well, what, what does that do for a generation of young readers? Do they even care that there are these lists of books that they're not supposed to read? Does that make that more appealing to them? And then down the road, 20, 30, 40 years later, do those books again show up as classics simply because of the controversy around them that keep happening? I, I, you know, so there, I, yeah. there was literally just an article in, uh, I'll, I, I don't remember where, but I saw it that, because, you know, one of the places that's banning books is the great state of Texas, mm-hmm. um, where Clay and I both uh, live. Go Texas. Uh, whoop, whoop. Uh, so proud. And uh, one of the the article headline was that this this is backfiring because this uh, one a black author who writes uh, YA stuff um, centered around black kids mm-hmm. uh, is actually selling way more books 
now that his books are hitting the banned book lists. And so I think to your point, Kathy, what, what we are probably going to see happen is, A, the best way to get people to do something is to tell them not to do it, right? Don't push the big red button. Guarantees it's going to get pushed. Don't read these books as a way to guarantee they're going to get read. Um, and what that then means is these books are going to end up on the shelves of mm-hmm. a whole bunch of kids mm-hmm. who are not going to be in positions of power and authority for another 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. And these are the books that are now forming their collective imaginations, specifically because there was a movement to try to ban them. And so 20 to 30 years from now, when these people are in positions of power and authority, when they're teachers in classrooms, when they're principals, when they're on school boards and that kind of stuff, they're going to say, you know what? These books were actually so important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they, they so much formed my imagination about who is my neighbor and what is possible. These books need to be on shelves, you know? And so I think it creates this kind of like weird loop that has, uh, thankfully, the opposite uh, effect of its intention. That's really interesting. So I guess two categories are kind of emerging now in my mind. A classic can be a classic just purely on the merit of the greatness of the work, the great storytelling, the classic tale, the character that captivates everyone who ever encounters it, you know, just evergreen greatness or a work that is somehow shaping the future in which it will be remembered. You know, it's like when when a famous politician or business leader or athlete talks about, um, oh, when I was young, I read this book by. And it's like, wow, you're the most famous blah, blah, blah in the country. You just dropped that title. I need to go check it out. You know, it's kind of what you're saying there. Um, so that's interesting too, right? Classics become classic not just in a time, but, but to a people, right? And right. it has, it's the same kind of thing, right? Because we share, we share and recognize some kind of value and identity in this story that has been told, right. that is meaningful to us now, as opposed to probably why some of us have struggled to name our favorite classics, which is like, <laughs> you keep telling me this is the most important book of the 17th century, but I am bored to tears on page two. Because it's not, it's a classic why. Maybe it has perfect syntax, or maybe it captures the dialogue uh, or the class system of the day eloquently, but it, it's not that kind of compelling story. Right. And it certainly doesn't seem to fit in my time and place or world anymore. Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. that like almost uh, archaeological reason to read classics. Right, like I want, I want, I want to, I want to live in this world for a while. A while. I want to learn. I want to experience what it was like. Um, this or was again, a you, go back to, you, you go back to Jane Austen, right? You have an author who is using the world as it was at, uh, to to pen novels of resistance against that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. So that that can be that can be fun in its own right. Right. Yeah, the person who was undermining, I think I think you're right, Kathy. That person who got pushed to the margins mm-hmm. or who was trying to throw rocks against the palace, like we come to respect them down the line, right? The, right. the, the subversiveness. And I think you're also right about the hype of censorship. That definitely not only does it work in the way JR said, but um, if it is being done because there's there's always a there's always a demographic that's just trying to use fear to get sure. influence right. 
it's real easy to be like, okay, how can we get followers? Oh, we need to scare them about blah, blah, blah. And the way they did it 50 years ago was they picked on this book. Oh, let's do that. Like, let's pick on the same book. Let's go book. into the, yeah, the, the totalitarian playbook and just do all their moves because that worked. It'll keep working. And so that stuff passes away, right? If it's disingenuous, blah, blah. So I, I think it's an interesting conversation. But then there's also probably the people like Melville who just kind of, you know, puttered out and and thought, man, I really thought I had a good story there, but <laughs> guess it wasn't any good. <laughs> well, again, though, because publishing has changed so much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so many authors, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, even today I saw two people I follow on Twitter kind of putting out there, one day I will have a New York Times bestseller. And so it's it's this sense of like... Um, uh, and I'm and not to say Melville didn't think that he was going to have some like blockbuster. I don't know what the like what would be the equivalent for him at that time. But nowadays there's this benchmark of New York Times bestseller, right? You get a special thing on your book and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't necessarily mean that book is going to hold the attention of the audience much beyond the first week or two, let alone 170 years down the road. So again, it's hard to think about what's going to last. One, because some of those classics I just didn't enjoy. (laughs) And some I have. I mean, I've read a lot, but would I go back? I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and ones that are kind of on the verge. They're not old enough, like Wrinkle in Time. I think A um, Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. It's another one of those, like, it's been banned. It's back on the banned list for certain schools. It feels a little bit like we're still in that time <laughs> that she's writing about. Will it will it hold the attention of an audience another 50, 100 mm. years from now? I think so, because we are terrible. We're, I feel like society is going to keep going in circles and we'll be back there. 100 years from now, my grandchildren can read my signed copy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, timing is everything. And also... I mean, we're not we're not acknowledging that once time travel exists, people are going to come back and, you know, what do you mean? Change, change all of this. But I, I guess for Melville, he published in 1851. That's an unfortunate decade <laughs> to be a creative. It was the most tumultuous decade, probably in American history, certainly at that point. And uh, it was it was just terrible. The 1850s and the most famous book that came out of that was um, uh, something of a little more substance called Uncle Tom's Cabin. So. You know, just timing, probably the country was a little bit distracted in the 1850s and 60s. It was a little off. Uh, and, and when he was going out of print. So, always interesting. And, you know, Matt just had to recuse himself from this conversation, I guess, because he, he can't speak to which one of his books is going to be the most famous of all of them in the future. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that tactic, right? Just write a million books. One of them is <laughs> One of them is bound eventually. to last. Well, it's a fun conversation. It's interesting to ponder. I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I really, it's it's very, very interesting topic. Um, yeah, if you're listening, let us know what what do you think. Do you, what do you think about this conversation? What books do you think will last? And uh, you know, we could actually have this conversation about some other forms of art, couldn't we? We could talk about comics you know, or movies or TV. Uh, I asked this question on Twitter and uh, got a couple of replies that were like nonfiction theology books. Mm. And it got me thinking a lot about C.S. Lewis 
and mm. how again uh, he's sort of I wouldn't say he's falling out of favor exactly as much as like just becoming less relevant mm-hmm. as culture is changing away from the the modernist culture that made things like mere Christianity so accessible and relevant. And that's as you know, that's evangelicalism is continuing to have a different meaning. Right. And so, you know, we could, in addition to other other media, I think we could have a whole different just conversation about like, who who are the theological classics? How did we decide that? And then again, what, yeah, what, what kind of theological work stands the test of time? That's cool too. Yeah. Just nonfiction in general is, I was thinking the first book I thought of is how to win friends and influence people. Mm-hmm. I mean, only because of the numbers, tens and tens of millions of copies. It's still recommended. It's still, eventually that's got to stop, right? Like 20, 30 years, you would think people don't care about that book anymore by Dale Carnegie. But maybe they do. I don't know. It's never read it. Is it. Such a, it is such a simple book in the yeah, best way. Smile and uh, what, what are the two takeaways? Smile and ask questions, basically. Yeah, is what honestly, the one that I remember the most is you'll get further getting, uh, you'll get further developing a genuine interest in three people than trying to get three people interested in you. And, and, and by the way, like Zig Ziglar, who became oh, like yes. kind of the big disciple coming mm-hmm. off of that train, he was so famous for all those decades. Now he's been dead in a number of years. So like the farther you get away from, you know, the stakeholders' lives, it, I, I think it starts to, it's not a hockey stick, but, you know, the graph is going to start to tail off. Mm-hmm. So. In most cases. Uh, I think you look at someone like Charles Dickens, though, right? <laughs> Kathy, and- why are you laughing at me? That's, that's a term. <laughs> You know how data spikes like a hockey stick? But I just... (laughs) Because we're talking about Dale Carnegie in Pittsburgh and hockey sticks. So we know that this is a club. And ketchup. (laughs) Yep. Mm, I'll never be invited back. No. Okay. Well, (laughs) No, you have to because because Matt keeps missing out. Skipping out on us. So, I mean, JR and I can carry this on, but it's nice to have a foil. That's right. I I am glad to be your foil. <laughs> okay, so we need to talk about um, speaking of kind of what's currently fascinating us, be it a classic thing or not. Um, what do you got, Jr.? I read a novella this week by Catherine Valente called "Comfort Me with Apples," hmm. and it was awesome. I can't tell you anything about why I liked it or why I think you would like it without spoiling some just really terrific reveals. So I will just say, I think if you listen to the show, you'd love it. I'm dying to talk about it with someone. So I'd love for all of you to read it. Join me. Um, Yeah. Catherine Valente most recently uh, wrote a book called Space Opera, which is a a sci-fi book patterned on Eurovision where Earth has to place in the galactic Eurovision or Earth will be destroyed. Um, And it is delightful. So, yes. Comfort me with apples. It's only about 100 pages long. It's terrific. Okay. Okay. What you got, Kathy? Good name. Okay. Well, we did see Eternals over the weekend. Yeah. So that is fascinating me because Ah. there are a lot of people who are not happy with the movie. I've Uh, heard, and I haven't seen it, I've heard... um, like the first part is dull and the second part is great. I've heard, I've heard like these kind of 
part of it is not so it's like man part of it's pretty fun what was your experience i enjoyed it i did, i enjoyed it and it's hard uh because i want to avoid spoilers um i enjoyed it it's i wanted to go in i tried to go in with like okay this is part of the mcu but it's also not necessarily going to fit in the way i have imagined or seen um uh MCU on the big screen. So uh, I just was like, I'm going to go in for sheer entertainment and I'm going to walk out. Am I entertained? Is it wor- Was it worth the, the time that I spent? Um, unlike some recent movies that I've seen, like Lamb, just got to throw that in there again. That one I felt like, why did I waste my money and my time? <laughs> watching that movie whereas with Eternals I really there were a lot of there are some people who feel like the diversity is forced didn't it didn't fit the MCU the action wasn't there blah 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 I I enjoyed it I enjoyed it I enjoyed it um, particularly as who I am as a Korean Asian American woman watching this movie once listeners, you have all watched the movie, let's get on and chat about this, maybe on Twitter or something like that. But it just, there were some things that just hit a little too close to home. Let's just hmm. say that. There were a couple lines where I, I looked at Peter and I was like, I literally have heard this. Like, this is an experience. So appreciated that. But actually, my big thing is uh, <laughs> Arcane. On Netflix. So you just pulled a JR. You're going. I did. I know. Look at you just dropping two. Yep. So I know nothing about League of Legends except that my two boys have spent a ridiculous amount of time. LOL. As it's known. So ridiculous. Incredibly Mm -hmm. ridiculous amount of time. If, If we could recoup that somehow, like in grades or money, they'd be set for life. Um. But Elias recently was like, "Hey, have you watched this? You don't know. You don't need to know anything about the game. It's like a little backstory." And so I'm fascinated by this kind of trying to bring about another audience into like the gaming world that has no interest, like me. I'm never going to play the game. I've stood over the shoulders of my boys trying to figure out what the heck they were doing. Um, well, look, you've you got your you, you've got your junglers and your mids, and you've got your supports. <laughs> uh, well, well, we won't go into it now. Um, but I enjoyed it, so I think new episodes drop this weekend. Is it animated? So Is it live action? Yeah, it's animated. It's okay. animated, and um, uh, it, I enjoyed it. So you, if you know the game, it's backstory. If you don't know the game, you can enter into it. So I love that about it is I did not need a primer from Elias or Corbin about the show. But I still found it interesting about, okay. you know, like sad backstories and violence and power and class and things exploding and science. Was I cool. am intrigued. Yeah. How about you? Um, I'm going television. So, <clears throat> have you seen C, the Jason Momoa show on Apple TV? I have not watched it. I have seen it. <laughs> I saw the title card for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, my buddy at work uh, told me she doesn't really watch much, but she's been watching this about two months ago. So, I kind of like brought it into my consciousness. 
and uh, Jen and I just decided to start it. So I got into a couple episodes, and uh, I think I was talking to you, Jr. And you said what what you've heard about it. it tell me, tell me what you've heard about it. Like short. Uh, I've heard it's bad, and I've heard oh. that uh, I've heard that like they basically sort of like make up the rules as they go along, or like the world building is very confusing, and they keep like changing the rules right. of the game and stuff like that. So I was around episode three or four, I think, when I was like, dude. This is a highly bingeable show. Like, I'm really surprised. Why doesn't anybody talk about it? And you said that. And Jen was talking to somebody who said um, in the second season they just tried to do too much. Interesting. But, but let How me many tell seasons? you. seasons? I don't know. Okay. But I, I just finished season so one. far. Okay. Okay. I just finished season one last night. Eight episodes. It is such a good ride. Like, first of all, if you want to see Momoa, Momoa, like... The dude's range of characters may be limited, but he plays this character exceptionally well. Um, Does he go, all right, my dude? <laughs> oh, the whole opening of the entire show is a very, they've got like their own version of a haka and, and all kind of stuff. Um, but all right. I'm telling you, like, <laughs> the story is so good. I, I, I expect now that I'm going to run into these problems that people seem to talk about in, in season two, but that does not discount okay. how much we enjoyed season one. Okay. And I mean, really fascinating stuff. So the entire setup to the show is that in the 21st century, a worldwide pandemic <laughs> broke out a virus. And I, I think this was created like right before COVID. Um, and it rendered all but a small percent of the population blind and so everyone died and those that survived lost their vision and now we jump ahead centuries to find where the world has gone Hmm. and there's so much to discover so on the one hand i feel like there probably are going to be problems based on what people are saying but at the same time so much of season one is contained in such a small pocket like it would make sense that as you continue to expand and move around like you will see what other people have developed over that time. Um, but I see man, what you did there. Man, I, I was, there was a lot of like, what? Oh, no, they didn't. Okay, so that was mine. That's all I got. Uh, I want to say about Eternals real quick. Um, mm. I also really enjoyed it. Um, when I came out of it, I was like, yeah, that was fine. And the longer I've sat with it, the more I'm mm-hmm. like, I think I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, it, it is the least Marvel-y Marvel film I think we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It just does not feel like a Marvel film at all, mm-hmm. um, but not in bad ways. Hmm. I think it's easily the best character work Marvel has done. Uh, and if I had a complaint, it's that there are 10 brand new main characters. That yeah, it was a lot. And you know this from the trailer, if you've seen it, if not, you can guess, right? They're um, eternal, so they've been around a long time, and they're obviously not all together at the beginning of the present day. So they're, when there's 10 of them, you have about four too many scenes of them like going to a person saying, hey, this thing is happening, we all have to get back together, and that person being like, what? No. Okay. And then they have to go to someone else and do that. So, like, it ju- it does start to feel repetitive. Maybe that's what that first 45-minute comment was about. 
Yeah, how many times do you need to hear that we got to get the band back together again? That's it, right? And again, if there were like five of them and you Mm -hmm. do that two or three times, whatever. But when there are ten, like... Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. That said, uh, I was amazed, like... And I don't mean this as a criticism about other Marvel films because I enjoy them, right? But it, it it feels it feels a lot less organic in most Marvel movies. Here's the scene when we're going to sit around and quip together, and then like, okay, now it's time for the big action scene. So sit up in your chair, and now it's time for all the special effects and blah blah blah. And this movie felt way more organic. Like mm. the mm-hmm. the way the superpowers were used felt. Uh, felt really natural. Felt mm-hmm. really normal. It felt again. It felt like an outgrowth of these characters and their interactions. Um, there's a lot I also want to talk about. So Kathy, I will happily join that Twitter space. Yeah, I think that's the new thing we have, right? And to to talk about spoilers, um, especially because if you've picked up from the trailers, all of the Eternals have names that clearly mean that they inspired various world religions. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's something interesting to talk about. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great, and uh, I want to say a lot more about it. So mm-hmm. there we go. Awesome. Well. Oh, also, yeah. Clay, I watched The Harder They Fall, and it is great. Oh, yeah. I oh, heard. that was so the other one. If I was like. I guys, thought for sure that just, was what you were going to go with. But then I just finished episode or season one of C last night, and uh, okay. it's fresh yeah. in your mind. Um, but no, no one had been able to talk about the heart of they fall yet, so I figured we could talk about that next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. All right. I'll watch it this weekend. <sighs> well, folks, this has been uh, episode three hundred nine. Uh, Kathy, you sending in folks anywhere this week other than uh, yoga? By Not this yoga? week. No, not, not this week. week. You're off this, this week. week. Okay. I'm off this week. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Look at those boundaries. <laughs> How about you, Jr. Clay? I'm sending people right down to their local diner to make sure that the right ketchup oh, is on the table. I knew. <laughs> speak up. Speak up for what's right. Or just speak up for ketchup. Uh, I have a new tour article that will be coming out probably the week that you're awesome. listening to this. Okay, so that's moderately more impressive than my ketchup knowledge. It's moderately? Okay. Wait, 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 wait. A brand new tour article? Yeah, isn't that yeah. great? Like after uh-huh. the first uh-huh. one? Yeah. What? Uh-huh. Two, yeah. tour. Yeah. Yep. Not no, even one is about, to ketchup. This one is about uh, slasher fiction and what happens when the final girl grows up and starts telling her own stories. So I'm reflecting on Grady Hendrix, the Final Girl support group, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw, as well as the brand new remake of Slumber Party Massacre, which is a genuine delight. Uh, and huh. the the Halloween relaunch reboot, you know, Halloween and Halloween Kills. Uh, so yeah, all of that coming to a, a tour.com near you, uh, probably a few days after this episode launches. But obviously check my socials and I'll be blasting it all over the place. So Awesome. That is awesome. awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Next week's show, we're going to have um, author Jeff Chu talking about uh, his latest project, finishing the last book of Rachel Held Evans, Wholehearted Faith. So mm-hmm. until then, uh, be safe. Wait, read in part by our own Oh, Kathy I was Kong. like, what? Yeah. One chapter. Yeah. One chapter. It was, yeah. it was a delight. It yeah. It was a delight. And I cannot I wait say, for that episode. I will say I started this book and... Uh, 
Whew, didn't get too far before the uh, yes, just, just the lump in the throat. I can't I can't imagine being a reader on a project like that, let alone just uh, just kind of taking it in. So powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. So next week we've got Jeff Chu. Everyone, be safe. Wear your masks. Stay away from everyone. <laughs> Wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, wear masks. If you haven't figured it out by now, we need to talk. All right, thanks everyone. Talk to you next time. <laughs>